the uh, president signed two sweeping executive orders on climate change within the first month, and they encompass everything you could possibly do with the agencies of the federal government. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. On January 20th this year, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. Now, changes from one presidential administration to another are always significant, but sometimes the changes are not so dramatic as when the same political party retains the White House. Although the last time that happened was the transition in 1988 from Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush. But I, for one, do not recall a transfer of power that has represented such dramatic changes, both in terms of style and substance, as the change from the former Trump administration to the Biden administration. One of the areas, among many others, where this is the case is the realm of environmental, energy, and natural resource policy. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us someone who is exceptionally well qualified to talk about this change, my Harvard colleague, Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where she founded both the Environmental and Energy Law Program and the school's Environmental Law Clinic. Jody, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. So I'm very interested to hear uh, your impressions about environmental policy, as all of our listeners are. But something our listeners are always interested in hearing is learning about you and how you got to be where you are. So let's go back to more or less the beginning. Where did you grow up, Jody? I grew up in Vancouver in Canada. I'm originally Canadian. A beautiful place. Now, does that mean you went to primary and high school there? Yes, I went uh, all the way through high school. And yes, my family still can't understand what I'm doing in the United States. They they still say, are you are you serious? It, it's so beautiful here in Vancouver. So it is uh, it's you a know. beautiful city. So and then where was college? I went to Stanford uh, for university and studied what I studied human biology when I was oh, in Stanford. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Great and now, did you there. did you go directly to law school after graduating from Stanford? Or? I took a I did a year of it sounds crazy to say in a pandemic, but I took a year of traveling around the world by myself after graduation, mm. which was wonderful. Um, backpack through China and stuff like that in the 1980s when, you know, uh, it was still unusual to do that kind of stuff. And then um, I went back to Canada for a law degree. My family said you should come and do one degree back in your country before deciding where to make your life. Um, I did that. And then I ended up going back down to Harvard for graduate school, and I stayed down in the U.S. ever since. Now, tell me something. So you did an LLB at Toronto yep. and then an LM and an SJD at yes. Harvard Law School. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, so that's it's sort of the equivalent of doing a doctorate um, right. in law. Yeah. 
So when one does an SJD, I've heard of the degree before, but I really don't know much about it. Does does is it uh, coursework? Is it writing a thesis? What's involved in that? It's both. It's it's really like a PhD program. Uh-huh. Um, it's just most people do their PhDs in other fields like government, right, or economics. Um, but this is sort of the advanced degree in law, and you often do it when you've come from another country originally, um, and. So I did it partly because I was an import from Canada, and then I got the chance to be a professor um, starting out at UCLA, went on the job market after that degree was finished, and I had a first 10 years of my career um, that I spent out at UCLA. It was, it was a great place to start. But between, do I have this right, that between Toronto and Harvard, you did spend time as a clerk in the Court of Appeals in Canada? Oh, yes. So I clerked, like, you know, the, the same kind of process that we use mm-hmm. here. At, you know, I clerked at the court that would be most akin to the D.C. Circuit. Um, I see. In the U.S. context, yeah. And then, so then you wind up after uh, graduating from law school, then you went directly into academia at UCLA, or am I missing something? Yes. So after my degrees at Harvard, I went directly into being a professor, and I started out at UCLA. That's unusual, isn't it? No. I mean, there's a sort of an academic route. I mean, increasingly, you see people who have a PhD um, along with their law degree uh, nowadays going into law professoring. Sometimes they practiced for a few years, uh, but you don't see too many people who've spent a long career as a practicing lawyer converting then and becoming a prof. Yeah. And then about halfway through the time you spent at UCLA, if I have this right, you also took on a faculty position at the Bren School of Environmental Studies at uh, UC Santa Barbara. Yes, I did that as a sort of part-time thing. That that um, is a wonderful school that combines environmental engineering um, with environmental policy, but they don't have a law school up there. So they right. kind of brought me in to provide some law for them, and I was happy to do it. It, it is a wonderful school and, and a, of course, a wonderful location in Santa Barbara on top yes, of that. Yes, not bad. I did some surfing with the students back then. Um, did you really? I, w- I was mostly embarrassing, but it was kind of fun. I suspect not. Now, and, th- and then you came to Harvard in about 2005 or so, is that yes, right? Yes, 2005-06, yes. And you've been on the faculty ever since. I have. And yeah. So we're not going to lose you back to Canada? Is that fair to say? No, I, I, I think I've been here most of my adult life, so I think that risk is very low. Oh, good. That's good to hear. So, so let's turn to the situation in which we find ourselves, Jody, which is this very important change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. If I have it correct, and my recollection serves me, you were quite critical at various times of Trump administration moves in the environmental realm. If I do have that correct, is there anything that stands out to you as sort of being the worst in the sense that its effects can be long lasting, even with an effective Biden administration now in place? Well, what I would say about the Trump administration's impact on environmental and climate policy is that it's just the sheer breadth of it that's so monumentally important. I mean, the Trump administration unraveled, weakened or rescinded every climate regulation that the Obama administration had put in place. And they went beyond that to weaken many other environmental rules too. And so it's an across the board effort to pull environmental protection back as much as possible and weaken the agencies that are responsible for putting 
rules in place to protect public health and to address climate change. So it's the, it's the scale of what the administration tried to do and the kind of destructive nature of it. So perhaps then the in terms of dramatic changes from one administration to another, at least in the environmental realm, then the changeover from the Obama administration to the Trump administration is surely one of the most dramatic that Ab- we've ever experienced. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think everybody across all of the fields that you can think of, immigration, healthcare, um, you know, would say the same thing in their field probably, that the shift from Obama to Trump was really a drastic um, shift. But in environment, climate, energy, it's really hard to think of a major policy that was left untouched. And mm-hmm. and. To put that in context, just one more point about that. The Obama administration was the first ever to adopt federal rules to limit greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. It, it, was a, it was a sea change. Um, you know, fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks and uh, standards for power plants and standards for methane from oil and gas operations, and I could go on. And so that was a very important set of policies um, to put the U.S. in position to make a pledge to the Paris Agreement, which we could talk more about. And the Trump administration took that kind of watershed set of policies and said, we want to we want to weaken them and roll them back to the extent we can. Now, you were actually very in, involved in the antecedents for that action in the Obama administration in terms of some very important litigation, were you not? Well, I was involved. I was counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House in the first term. And I was sort of a participant in some of the major policies that got put in place early. And and the, the one that people would be most familiar with is the um, decision in the Obama era to double fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks and and put that agreement in place with the backing of the auto industry. So I was I was part of that effort and some other things too. But what I was thinking about was even before that the oh. litigation of Massachusetts um, that actually then eventually led to the endangerment finding. Oh yes, it, sorry, yes. So so the the most important Supreme Court case on climate um, ever, most important environmental case, Massachusetts versus EPA. Yes, I I wrote a brief on behalf of Madeleine Albright in mm-hmm. that case. Um, and uh, so I got to participate that way. It was a really wonderful um, opportunity to play even a small role in, in what became such an important decision by the Supreme Court. Now, that litigation, that was during the period of the George W. Bush administration. Is that correct? Yes. So it, it started in, I mean, the case was decided in 2007. So take us through, what, was, what were the basics of that case? This is so important. I think people would be interested to hear about it. Um, the basics of the case and then how that eventually led in the Obama administration to the so-called endangerment finding, which, of course, was so important. Right. So this case um, wound its way to the Supreme Court uh, over a period of years during the George um, W. Bush administration. And the heart and soul of it was... a. a effort to require the EPA to set rules to control carbon emissions that were coming from the transportation sector. So Mm -hmm. the environmental uh, 
litigants, the advocacy groups, and it ended up being a combination of states together with them, including Massachusetts, which is why it's called Massachusetts versus EPA, were arguing that the EPA under the Clean Air Act had an obligation to regulate these emissions coming from cars and trucks. And uh, originally, the George W. Bush administration's point of view was, no, we don't. Um, mm -hmm. That greenhouse gases aren't pollutants under the Clean Air Act, so we can't regulate them. And their view was, even if you tell us, even if you, the Supreme Court, say that actually they are pollutants, um, we have many policy reasons why we think using the Clean Air Act to control greenhouse gases is a very bad idea. So the EPA at the time didn't want to use the Clean Air Act to attack greenhouse gas emissions. And that was the issue that went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided, first of all, the most crucial issue, the issue of standing. Does anybody really have legal standing to sue over the harms caused by climate change? Because it's such mm -hmm. a disparate distributed harm. Nobody's right. especially affected. And the court, by a vote of five to four, a very close vote, uh, a very different Supreme Court, by the way, um, yes. uh, voted that, yes, Massachusetts as a state has standing. Losing its coastline over time is a sufficient harm. And they also ruled that greenhouse gases are a pollutant, as it's defined under the Clean Air Act, so the EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gases. And the reasons the agency gave for not doing so were not consistent with the law. So mm -hmm. they sent it back to the George W. Bush administration to say, you either have to set these standards or give us a better reason why the science won't let you. You know, And the scientific record was so strong in favor of the harms caused by greenhouse gases that they really didn't have an argument left. But they didn't do anything before leaving uh, office. So in the waning days of the George W. Bush administration, they chose still not to regulate these emissions from cars and trucks. Um, and that is what sort of was the foundation for the Obama administration when Barack Obama won the presidency. He came in promising to take the first step in setting these standards, which requires making a finding that greenhouse mm -hmm. gases pose a danger uh, to human health and welfare. That's sort of the scientific determination that an agency, that EPA has to make before it sets standards. And that's what you're talking about when you say endangerment finding. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the Trump administration never attempted to overturn that endangerment finding. They never went back to that. They just looked at the, some of the regulations that were carried out under it, of course, but right. they didn't go to that. I mean, it's hard for an agency to change its mind about something where the science is so solid and so voluminous and then go into court and defend that. They would surely lose a legal challenge. But it's easier to say, well, the science may be what it is, but we have all these other reasons why you know, mm -hmm. we can weaken the regulation. And they hope that a court will let them do that. Well, and as you said, much was done uh, during the years of the Trump administration to turn things back. But now we have the Biden administration. Um, so I'm interested first, before we talk about regulatory actions, I'm interested to hear what's your thinking in terms of new climate legislation, um, given the you know, the challenge, obviously, that a 60-fold margin is typically required in the Senate and unless it's under very special conditions. Um, and the Democrats have at best 51 votes with a tie-breaking vote. So what do you see in terms of legislation? 
Well, I hope I'm wrong about this uh, prediction, but I, I don't think there's enough support in a close Congress like this is for a major bill that puts a price on carbon. I don't mm-hmm. see a carbon tax coming out of this Congress. I don't see um, some revised version of a cap and trade bill like mm-hmm. the one that the House passed in the Obama administration, you know, the um, mm-hmm. American Clean Energy and Security Act, otherwise known as Waxman Markey. I, I, I don't see a big bill to put a price on carbon getting through. And I say that because even when the Democrats controlled the Congress, right, back in 2008 to 2010 and had both right. the House and the Senate, they couldn't get that done. Right. And what it, what it shows you is that energy in, and climate politics don't line up precisely along party lines, right? right. The, the, it depends that your vote depends on the states that people come from and whether they're sort of fossil energy states, traditional um uh, you know, fossil states that depend on coal and oil and gas. And so Democrats like Joe Manchin have an awful lot of power. And, and he in particular at the moment, as everyone knows, does have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And he's the chair of the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee to boot. So there are these key moderates in these key blocking positions, I think, will make it very difficult uh, to get a bill through. Now, that's not to say that nothing will happen in Congress on climate, mm-hmm. energy, environment, because I think as part of recovery legislation and um, economic stimulus legislation, we may well see many investments in clean technologies, clean energy sector investments like um, grid enhancement uh, investments, infrastructure, uh, things that are boosts and supports for you know, clean energy deployment. Um, but it will come in the form of spending or tax incentives, and it will come through, I think, budget reconciliation most likely, uh, which is this complicated process that you, you can use to accelerate passing legislation without the normal filibuster risk. And so I think that I think that we'll see investments, but in terms of regulatory legislation to cap carbon or price carbon, I think I think we're not quite there yet, at least not for the next couple of years. The midterms may may change the politics a bit. Either way. Either way, exactly. Either it might direction. get worse. It might get yes. harder to do this. Yeah. So un- unlikely to see explicit broad-based climate legislation, but possibly carbon-friendly aspects of economic stimulus and or bipartisan infrastructure legislation. And then you also mentioned tax incentives. Is that sort of the... Right. I think that's, that's what, I think that's what most people think of is on the menu um, that can garner some bipartisan support. You know, spending is going to happen, right? The economic situation requires a big right. bunch of recovery spending. And I think it would be fair to expect... Um, we see some green stimulus in there. Now, given the political challenges that you were just describing uh, in terms of focused climate legislation, there will clearly be interest, indeed there already has been interest, in taking unilateral approaches without the Congress, that is regulatory approaches, including both executive orders and what is more difficult, rulemakings. Um, You've had a lot of experience with those. Um, there is some concern that rulemaking can be much more difficult now in the current political environment and, more importantly, the current judicial environment than it was during the Obama administration because there are these 228 federal judges appointed by 
former President Trump, and of course, more importantly, as you already mentioned, the Supreme Court 6-3 conservative majority. What do you think all of that portends for environmental regulatory moves from the White House? Well, that's the multi-billion dollar question. So, yeah. you know, you know, presidents come in and use the powers they have to get done whatever they can get done when they face an intransigent Congress that, you know, where they don't control both chambers. And even when they do control both chambers, presidents like to use executive branch power. So you can count on uh, the Biden administration to be trying to deploy all of the levers, all of the um, tools that it can use. And they include adopting new rules, let's say for power plant emissions of CO2, adopting new rules for cars and truck emissions, adopting sector by sector rules that EPA has the authority to do. And and there are other agencies too, like the Department of Energy sets appliance efficiency standards, the Department of the Interior regulates extraction of oil and gas on public lands, you've already seen them freeze new leases on public lands, and they're going to favor wind and solar siting on public lands. So mm -hmm. I, I think all of this policy, these, these changes are things that a president can do under existing law. The trouble you run into is None of these mechanisms, either individually or collectively, lends itself to an efficient economy-wide way to price carbon, right? So you, the environmental economist, would say, yeah. this is wildly inefficient, right? We're doing this through um, regulation. Um, and there are other things the Biden administration wants to do. You know, the uh, president signed two sweeping executive orders on climate change within the first month. And they encompass everything you could possibly do with the agencies of the federal government, from how, how the Treasury Department uh, finances overseas projects to how the Agriculture Department uh, sends money to farmers. The, the administration is on the hunt for all of the policies that any agency can use to support its clean energy agenda. And so that's what I'm looking for. I think they're going to try to make good on all these um, announcements that have been made in the executive orders, but they're largely not self-executing. So, so just because the president signs the executive order doesn't mean it happens. The agencies have to go and do the work. So I want to take you back to the concerns about the Supreme Court. This right, is something right. you certainly know a lot about and, and infinitely more than I do about. But that with this conservative majority, I would think as, a, as an outsider to legal scholarship or law, that it's going to favor literal reading of statutes, much less flexibility uh, for agencies to interpret statutes in, you know, innovative ways such as you know, the Clean Air Act article focusing on localized air pollution being right. applied to CO2 and climate change. Right. In fact, I've even heard some uh, commentators say that, and I don't know if it's wishful thinking on their part or it's they're frightened of it, but that the Chevron doctrine, um, the deference to agencies' interpretations, could even be overturned by this court. Can you tell us, first of all, tell us what the Chevron Doctrine is, okay. and also what's, what's the outlook for these sorts of moves? Probably the greatest legacy of the Trump administration is three new Supreme Court justices who mm -hmm. are very conservatively inclined, and, and not just conservative in a, um, in a sort of a traditional sense, but in terms of how they read statutes, and that is they read laws in a quite textualist, literalist uh, mm -hmm. way that leaves less room for agencies to interpret their authority um, creatively or mm -hmm. ambitiously. And, and what, what these justices tend to want is a very explicit 
specific authority to do the thing that the agency is purporting to do. And this point of view is a point of view that would rather have Congress speak afresh, speak again, and be crystal clear that, yes, you can set these standards in this way that you're purporting to set them. That's a, a very limiting approach for agencies that traditionally have been entitled to some flexibility to mm -hmm. adapt their statutes to new problems over time. So to the extent we have three new justices who are very um, narrow in the way they read text, as you uh, alluded to, that could be a real limiting factor on how ambitious regulatory agencies can be. And, and I think the Chevron doctrine is just a principle that has developed over time that stands for the idea that when language is ambiguous mm -hmm. or when Congress has been silent on an issue in a, in a law, that the agency's interpretation gets uh, deference from the court. Mm -hmm. So the theory of this Chevron doctrine is when it's not entirely clear, the tie goes to the runner. The agency gets the benefit of the doubt. And it's sort of deferring to the agency's expertise. And the idea is to defer to the fact that Congress must have wanted to hand that ambiguity to the agency. Mm -hmm. And the current court majority, including the three new justices, at least from what we can tell from their publications prior to them joining the court, from their writings and their lower court opinions before they were elevated to the Supreme Court, they seem to be um, less favorable to that kind of approach, less interested in deferring to the agencies, and more interested in deciding themselves. They think that it's the court's job to read these statutes. And will they show their hand in some specific decisions that are coming up or is is that sort of litigation where we'll actually see this uh, more than a year away? Well, I think it depends on what cases they wind up taking and whether mm -hmm. those cases involve these issues of statutory interpretation. But already in the last year or two, the court has sent very strong signals about it is sort of inclinations, which is to back uh -huh. away to back away from st strong deference to the agency. So, so what is the bottom line? When agencies like EPA or the other environmental regulators craft rules, they have to be mindful uh, of a court that's going to look skeptically at broad assertions of their legal authority that, that are not grounded in clear, explicit text. And so they have to be more careful than they might otherwise be. That's partly why I mentioned the way that the Biden administration is using all of the levers, because mm -hmm. they're not just using rulemakings. They're mm -hmm. trying to use the ways they fund uh, programs. They're trying to use all the discretion that the federal government has, not just rulemakings that wind their way to the Supreme Court. Right. Now, a lot of what comes from the federal government in terms of climate change is intended to affect, obviously, the compliance entities uh, in private industry. And so before we adjourn this session, I want to turn with you to think about private industry just for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, s some analysts and observers both in NGOs and even in academia seem to paint the fossil fuel industry um, with a broad br brush, condemning all firms, whether coal, oil, gas, or any, as essentially uniformly the enemy when it comes to uh, climate change. Um, that may be a straw man I'm painting, but, but I've heard such uh, characterizations. I'm really interested to know what your view is of this. Well, as you know, I, I sit on the board of ConocoPhillips, which is um, 
an oil and gas company. It's the largest independent um, producer of oil and gas in the U.S. And so from that perch, um, I've learned a lot about the industry. I really understand the perspective you're describing that, that mm-hmm. says the fossil fuel energy is the enemy. Is, is um, I understand where people are coming from when they want to decarbonize the economy. They want to um, phase out fossil fuels and they want to do it quickly. And I'm extremely sympathetic. I, I, I want to also phase out fossil fuels. Um, and I'm, you know, I've spent my whole public career working on those policies. Mm-hmm. But I will say that... Um, there are some nuances, and I think the industry is in a moment of transition. Um, I, I do see, for example, the European oil and gas companies are already making pledges and investments in alternative yes. business models, and it's the beginning of that. Um, by no means are we down the road far enough or fast enough, but you can see that they're starting to think about becoming different kinds of companies over time. And I think the U.S. Um, companies are following suit. They're beginning to disclose climate-related risks that they see. They already use climate scenarios in their strategic planning. They price carbon when they think about uh, their business and their investments. So behind the scenes, um, there is a shift that's beginning, and it may be long overdue, but I see that change coming from the industry. That's interesting. Now, finally, I want to ask you one other thing, um, just briefly. That is something that we've observed uh, before the pandemic, of course, closed down so many activities. But in the year 2019, was the rise of youth movements in Europe and in the United States regarding climate change. Um, I'm interested to know what is what's your reaction to those youth movements, which I'm sure once the pandemic passes, we will see coming back uh, once again on the streets. Yeah, I mean, I think they've become a very powerful force and powerful voice. I mean, look at the impact that youth groups, the Sunrise Movement in particular, had on domestic politics in the last mm-hmm. presidential cycle. Yeah. Um, really forcing climate change into the debate among the Democratic candidates, um, making it a priority as they debated each other. Um, and eventually, when Joe Biden got the nomination and won the presidency, he did so with a very ambitious climate and clean energy agenda. And, and I think that had a lot to do with the power of these movements you're talking about. So initially, I, I have to confess, I didn't know that the Green New Deal and the movement behind it would have the powerful impact that it had, but it became a tremendous organizational tool, political tool, mobilizing message, and it came to affect the platform and the campaign promises of President Biden. So you have to give them a lot of credit. And together we can watch over the next two years to four years to see what materializes. With that, I'm going to bring it to a close. Um, Thank you very much, Jody, for taking time to join us today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest today, Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where she founded the Environmental and Energy Law Program and the school's Environmental Law Clinic. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening.
Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.